Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit, and today I get to go to school, which is one of the things that I'm the most excited about, to learn new things. I, um, I came across uh, today's guest through one of the networks that I'm part of, and he spoke about the topic of food in a way that I could really relate to because I've sometimes had a hard time there with simple solutions and simple truths and, and very sort of dogmatic rules of, of thumb. And when I heard Hans von Essen speak, I uh, got really, really curious and I wanted to find out more. And he graciously agreed to come on the podcast and speak to me and educate me and hopefully you um, about this topic. Welcome to the podcast, Hans. Well, thank you very much, Amit. And I say, what an honor, world of wisdom. Right. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think about when I was a little kid, when I was like six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And, uh, you know, the time when uh, adults keep asking you, what do you want to become when you, are, when you get uh, grown up? And I remember I used to think that when I, get older, I want to become a wise old man. So it's, it's really nice to it's kind of... This is yeah. your shot. <laughs> <laughs> this is my shot at it, yes, really. Actually, that's, that's, uh, you're, you're leading off uh, towards where I would love to start, uh, just to, to uh, frame the conversations, because I, I mean, I've, I've read up about you now. Um, but regardless, I would love for you to introduce yourself um, and... and uh, I typically ask that very simple or very large, you know, existential question um, about who are you, Hans, if you would put yourself in context, however you wish to do that. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I like to go back actually to when I was 14 years old to start with. That was 1972. And uh, uh, in Sweden especially, there was a lot of talk about that we live unsustainably, uh, that we produce so much from the uh, resources that are uh, not replaceable, and we pollute the nature. A Swedish person at that time, we heard, consume 30 times more of, of the unreplenishable resources compared to an Indian. Uh, and I was 14 at that time, so I really took that. So that has sort of been my, my entry point to, to life. And uh, now I'm the managing director of uh, Beras International Foundation. It spells out building ecological regenerative agriculture and society. And we work with uh, something we call Diet for a Green Planet, for one thing. And... Uh, ecological regenerative agriculture and uh, bioregions or sustainable food societies. That's our key concept. So just now I'm quite much a teacher because we have a cooperation with uh, a new cooperation with Novia University of Applied Sciences in Finland. And we have a course named Diet for a Green Planet, Managing Transformations in the Food System. That's quite new. We are starting the second round. We'll start in May this year. And we also have had this more or less the same course 
in the Swedish Folk High School Stensund uh, for seven years now. So there we have a growing network of change leaders uh, that we educate. They are basically kitchen managers, diet managers, cooks, and, and people working some somewhere in the food system. Even entrepreneurs and civil society people there. We we do a lot of other things also in in Beras. For one thing, we have this uh, this part. My colleague Fredrik Birat is uh, helping diet units in Sweden, uh, and and diet units is the unit in a municipality that takes care of all the food in schools, food in elder care and in social care. So in in Sweden, the schools are obliged by law to provide a hot meal every day. So that means that the diet units in Sweden, they they serve all the school kids in in Sweden with hot food. And uh, it's very good that we have diet units, but they tend to be under-resourced and... uh, we have recently discovered a specific problem there with these that uh, very often the personnel is not motivated and uh, my colleague knows how to how to do something about that so there we have a, an entry point to to help them because you can really save money by by working uh, doing a good job there and uh, with in the combination with diet for a green planet uh, that's something. So that's one re- direction. Uh, then we also have this international work where we build uh, networks and, and build up cooperation between organizations that, that work with these three areas, the, the, the farming and, and the regions and uh, the diets. Yeah. Actually, the first reflection that I made was was just um, how long this discussion has been ongoing. I mean, there is a move right now in the sustainability movement to kind of say like, "Oh, we we are we are getting it now." It feels very, and at the same time, you're pointing to. I mean, this is a discussion that's been ongoing since '72. I'm imagining that it had something to do with the with the uh, limits to growth study and and the Club of Rome and and all of that stuff. Um, Roughly at that time, but it's it's such a yeah, it's an arc. I mean, at the same time, food has got less and less part of our life. I mean, we spend ten percent of our resources on food, and uh, food has such a so much bigger part actually of our lives. So it has been a big movement away from away from putting emphasis on food and towards, at the same time in in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, there was still this dream about uh, cutting short the need for nourishment to have a, just eat a pill so you wouldn't have to mess with food at all. (laughs) That was actually a dream at that time. And and we have come in in that direction. And that means that we know less and less, less and less, where the food actually comes from. 
that's a big part of the problem, I think. But maybe if we just if we jump in there, like the um, so if you would if you would paint a picture of food today on, on the very high level, like you know ten thousand meters um, type type picture, what what is it that we need to know about food? Like what is the what are the f- basics here? Like just the fundamentals. Well, the first basic I say is that we should know more about where the food comes from and to take responsibility for the primary production and that it is regenerative. That's that's a bit of the, the key. We are today 7.8 billion people on Earth. And uh, if we look at the Earth, it has has land, it has ocean, about 30% is land, and out of the land there is 10% that is arable land. And this little piece of arable land produces, it's no exact figure here, but you can say 90, 95 something percent of all the raw material to food that we eat. So the arable land is really a key. And if you make a simple division here, uh, 1.4 or 1.5 billion hectares of arable land with 7.8 billion people, you land with 1,800 square meters of arable land per person. And if you want to live really sustainable, really turning the thing down from unsustainable to sustainable, from depleting the earth to regenerative, we can absolutely live well with what can be produced on those 1,800 square meters. And the first thing to think about when we go down to the bit more concrete is that around half, at least half of that area should be actually used to build up the land, to regenerate the land, which means it should be covered with perennial crops, with clover grass in in Nordic uh, conditions. We talk about clover grass and herbs that stand for several years because when you grow like that, the roots become ever deeper and permeates the soil and builds up the soil. And when you harvest, you harvest only the top. So it starts growing again as as soon as as it rains after the harvest. It starts growing directly. So that builds the soil. And that you give back to the soil. And you give it back, for example, through animals. This is the traditional way, and, and, and it's nothing wrong with it. On the contrary, that's needed. You need some kind of animals to break down the cellulose and other materials that are undigestible. So that's what you want to see. You want to connect the food you're actually eating and you want it to be grown in a regenerative way. And you want to support the farmer or the producer who, who, is, uh, who is doing that work. So I, I would say that's where you want to go. And so when you say regenerative, does that mean... Basically, I mean, no pesticides, 
would it mean no fertilizers? And how, how far is, where, where, what is the definition of regenerative? Because it's, it's used a lot these days. Yeah, my, my thinking, our thinking about regenerative is, we, we say ecological regenerative because that is uh, organic plus. It's, mm. it's a bit beyond the minimum rules for organic. And uh, the ideal is that we don't have any nitrogen from that, that originates in uh, uh, artificial nitrogen. We, we don't have any artificial uh, nitrogen, but all the nitrogen comes from biological fixation. Which, which is done with clover, leguminose plants, and uh, free-living bacteria that can fix the nitrogen from the air. And the air is endless. Uh, so, so that's the ideal, to have a system that takes the carbon from the air, the nitrogen from the air, and with help of fungi in, in the soil, mycorrhiza in the soil, also releases the little minerals, phosphorus and other things from, from the soil. So such a system can be supporting itself more or less completely. You can need to add a little bit like a medicine, but it should be self-supporting. So it's not without fertilizer, but the fertilizer comes from within the system. Okay, so it's like, uh, and, and this is, is this always, because I keep hearing about this term, like no-till farming. And, and this is then, is that that? <laughs> or is this? It, it can be no-till. It's rather that you try to minimize tilling. The typical farm under the uh, Northern European conditions is uh, you would have a crop rotation with perennial crops, clover, grass, and herbs, and one-year crops. So you would till sometimes, but you would like to make that a minimum, uh, uh, the minimum you can. But to do it completely without, that's, that's a bit uh, not really practical in all, all conditions. Mm. So that is kind of dependent on where you are, where you are farming as well, how, how often you would need to till or, or not till, or which crops you would use. And so this is really sort of local, localized technology, if you will. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a key to it because every farm is unique. That, that I think is the beauty of the, the thinking that um, such a farm you build up out of the, the local conditions and you really have to think about many things. It's, the, um, it's really an art to build up this type of farm. There are some rules of thumb that help you get started and get an idea where where to go, but then the final build up that's that is very local and very individual individual. What kind of crops fit to this soil? Try to grow things that that fit with this type of soil with this type of nature, and also with the local markets. I mean you have to think about economy and social things also and and what are your skills so there are very many ways to do it and that's really the charm of it also that each each farm becomes so individual 
it's fascinating. I mean, I spend most of my my time and thinking in the social space, if you will. And a lot of those concepts are, are there as well, that we should sort of think, think local and, and be with what is like, you know, start acting more contextual, looking at what, what are the structures and what are the preconditions that we have, even though, you know, in the social context, you could argue that in some way, you can always kind of change it, you can re rebuild um, structures and, and, and incentives and all of that stuff, um, whereas maybe with with the Earth, it's it's slightly a different time scale, maybe. But these themes seems to be reoccurring. That this capacity for kind of being with what is um, listening, if you will, to to people or to the ground, mm. um, starting with your own interests and own passions, and, and kind of driving it from from that, and and trying to leave the place in a better state than when you found it, <laughs> like. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, when you go to back to the consumer, it is one entry point uh, that is very good is to find such a farmer in your in your near or that you can buy products from and and, and start supporting that first by buying from community supported agriculture or what you have. There are many many different entry points to start this. No. Yeah. Because you you mentioned that you work with with the Beras Foundation, you work with three legs, uh, if you will. So the farming and the regions and the diet. Yeah. Um, and well, actually, before we go there, but one of the things that I that I keep thinking of, but it's more because I'm so programmed in our current way of thinking. But when you farm in this way, um, what about scale? <laughs> How how does that work? Like, how do we think about scale when when we start thinking local in this way, and when we when we set the bar at regenerative practices? Yeah, well, I, I think like out of biology, you could say there there is a reason why an ant looks different than an elephant, and the basis basic reason for that is that uh, area grows with a square and volume grows uh, with a cube. So the volume grows very much faster than, than the area. And uh, that means a lot of things. So if, if you would build an animal looking like an ant to the size of an elephant, it would collapse by the weight. So it's not possible. And also in, in biology, you find this phenomenon that anything that grows has to reorganize every time it grows above a certain level and and it has to reorganize the organs and everything so it's the same thing with the farm uh, i have actually in in the course i have one exercise about farm size which is very interesting because a farm that is one hectare if you know what a hectare is it's 100 times 100 meters so 100 hectares is a square kilometer if you have a farm of one hectare it's uh, it's not enough to have one cow in that one. It's, you can have one cow, but uh, with one cow, where's the bull? I mean, it becomes a problem to have just one cow uh, because it cannot reproduce <laughs> without some kind of help from outside. And on the other hand, you can... Uh, so the one hectare farm tends to be very much centered maybe on... Uh, on a cafe or a restaurant or tourism or something, it gets incomes from outside and it cooperates a lot with 
bigger farms around. But it can still build quite a nice system. It's just you have to, uh, in order to get the, the incomes working, you have to have a, another type of, of, of farming. Often very manual, and it can be very neat. So it's definitely one possibility to do it. When you have 10 hectares, we have a very neat example of a 10 hectare uh, biodynamic farm in uh, in my part of Sweden that has actually has during a long time created two job opportunities which uh, in conventional t- terms is said to be impossible to live on a farm that size but they they sell everything directly to a consumer and uh, they process some things and uh, they have a system that is uh, they have both sheep and vegetable growing and some hens and so on really a classic farm and they can live on it because they have this multitude and they sell everything directly to consumers so the consumer carry the thing and that farm is big enough to actually live with the the production they're selling the products when when it was smaller they more more selling of the experience uh, the value of being at the farm the tourism thing and these kind of things so when you come up to 100 hectare farms well then then you certainly have enough to have a whole herd of cows and you can have milk production and sell to the uh, to the factory and so on so in every size that has its way of doing it in an ideal way we have worked with even bigger farms like thousand hectares and former subhorses in uh, in the soviet union uh, which is tricky uh, then i would even recommend to split it up into different centers otherwise otherwise the distance the sheer driving with heavy materials from from the grasslands and to the stables and from with the manure back to the furthest away fields just makes the energy consumption very big and and also it will be difficult to have the cows walking all the way when you have a thousand hectare farm with uh, uh, 800 cows then the furthest away grazing lands will be very far away from the farm center so there will be a lot of walking back and forth <laughs> with the cows which is unpractical. So those farms usually don't have the cows grazing. They have them on a on a concrete plate near the farm, which uh, I'd say that's that's not ideal. The ideal is that to use the the ability of the cows to go and get their fodder themselves by simply grazing. Uh, so so there are definitely ideal uh, ideal size. <laughs> And and what is like a normal industrial farm today? Like if we're not thinking in regenerative terms, but rather just sort of the this, the standard industrial farm today, how how big would that be? Well, the standard uh, they will be as big as they can, and that depends on the type of land. Uh, so, in Ukraine or the American Middle West, or in in parts of Brazil, it will be endless big because they can do it. And in Sweden, a big farm in Sweden, how big is a big farm in Sweden? Well, there are farms up to uh, 
two, three, four thousand hectares, even in Sweden, they are seldom. They're not so common, but uh, the normal size of a dairy farm today is getting to be more than 100, 200 cows, which means it should have, if it has a balance, it should have like 400 hectares, but usually it has less than that and it's depending on buying in fodder. But so what I'm hearing is that the, the practices that you are working with, given the sizes and like the that type of ownership structure of the farms i mean it's it's feasible to basically to to sw- to change over to regenerative practices yeah it's absolutely feasible uh and and how is the what is the cost like why it's like one of those things you know that that naive question like well then why don't everybody do it why why doesn't just everybody switch because we know it's good <laughs> well because it's a big step it's it's a big step and it's many things you have to make working depending on what type of non-organic farming you have to start with the the step is can be not that big or it can be uh, huge for for a swedish dairy farm that is not organic very often the step has to do with the market because when there is a market for organic milk that is bigger than than what we have then uh, Arla, the big producer, will let in a few more pr- uh, producers. And uh, then they can get their better price for milk. So, so then it's market-driven. And, and unfortunately, the market comes often very uneven. So we, you have a drive. for now, now you have a drive and the, there is more organic milk needed than the market can take. and then. Farmers are invited and and they they start and then comes a backlash in the market and then the dairy has more organic milk than they can sell as organic and then they stop taking in. Uh, so so it would be nice if the market could have a steady growth. Then you could let in farmers in the pace uh, that that they come. That would be ideal, but unfortunately, market is just up and down. Because <laughs> I think, I mean, so my background, what I've been running is is like in the materials business, and so particularly focused on like on plastics. And and so I've been very sort of well, I'm very well informed around plastics recycling and and plastics use, and you know, and and then a lot of the story is that oh, you as consumers just have to demand more sustainable products and and basically what i'm seeing in my backyard or like that in that industry is that it doesn't have so much to do with the consumers at all it, it, there are other forces that needs to start uh, that that needs to change first say and they they don't have as clear incentives as a consumer would it's not as clear cut and and it becomes much more complex that picture so one could say that it's great that you're requesting certain things as a consumer, but it's going to have a marginal effect on the on the actual end. But how is that story? What is that weighting between consumers consumers drive and demand versus sort of the market structure or the structures, you know, incentives in the market as such in the in the food industry? Is there more? Can we do more as consumers? Do we do we actually have more to say? We have 
a lot to say and uh, in in a way and another way we have little to say if you go through the uh, supermarkets the big big markets you have very often you have a a player in the middle there who tells the consumer what you can have and tells the producer what they can produce so that makes it complicated in in the specific case of organic milk in Sweden i could say it's pretty straightforward uh, that we can ask for more uh, organic milk and and that will really help and the second part is the local markets that uh, come up we have uh, in sweden we have record rings uh, i don't know how much that has spread to other parts of the world but that's an innovation from finland that the producer states that for example i have organic eggs and organic potatoes and onions and i i'm going to be on the market uh, this saturday that that day how much do you want and then they meet up and they can uh, make the business pretty quickly because it's all packed and ready and so that's an efficient way and this this way of working has spread really quickly uh, it was innovated in finland and there were very quickly many of those in finland and the next year we had them in sweden and now we have them in many places in sweden and there are several other such local market innovations coming up so that's a very good thing that's that's one thing the consumer can do directly to uh, to start but still that's marginal i mean in in comparison to the big streams it's small in volumes but i think it means a lot in in the long term because it encourages those farmers who are doing this and it makes their neighbors see that that this works so i think it has a profound effect uh, when you don't count the volumes but see what what effect it will have on the long side because it makes the neighbors think the other farmers think and consider the possibility to do the same and eventually that will uh, will affect also the big structure there is a key problem here that the the market is very much built up on the global so we have for example in sweden very many products that are produced say they are produced uh, near your village they have to tra- travel to a central place in sweden and then back again because that's the system we have so very often we have we have neglected the local systems so we need to build up the local systems again a sound food system i think it it requires at least a sm- slaughtery uh, in in for every town or every village even small scale slaughtery and a small scale dairies much more than we have today that really can take care of things and distribute them from local to local so we're, we we have to really rebuild the infrastructure in 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 the big picture because it's all has been built on the idea of just in time and that means that we're contradicting the idea of just in case and uh, now that we have a crisis in the world and we see that maybe just in case actually happens well then it would be very good not to have gone quite as far as we have with the just in time idea to have no 
uh, no margins ever anywhere in, in the system. But that's, I mean, it's also encouraging because it sounds like even, it kind of sounds like the, the, the transformation that you're describing sounds like it could kind of happen in lockstep. I mean, we know that it's hard to change people's behavior. And so there will be a, a relatively a small amount of people that will actually start changing their behavior. Uh, and, and they could probably match up with, with the amount of farmers that are, and, and the amount of producers then that are open to and, and able to change their behavior as well. And you could kind of create this mutual success story, which would then kind of um, gradually invite more people into that type of um, thinking or that type of story. Yeah, that's um, exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And we have, I, I should mention here also the story of Södertälje and, and the diet unit, because that is actually a strategy we had uh, from the beginning, that uh, to work and think nationwide is just too big. So we have broken it down to looking at the municipality or a small region. And we started with Södertälje, which is a town of a, now 100,000 inhabitants, an industrial town, and uh, with the school, with the food in school, uh, and they did they did a job that I think is uh, quite uh, quite novel at the time, and now becoming more and more taken after by others. At the start, they had about the same thinking as most diet units has, and that is that. Try to get the volume as big volumes as possible in order to uh, have a big purchase power so you can negotiate the price down. I mean, that's, that's the conventional way of thinking. This was turned completely upside down by instead making each school have its own uh, menus and its own decisions on, on what, what food to serve. And at the same time, uh, work with this concept we have to try to have as much organic as possible and to diminish the losses, work with with the time of year, local in season, and also to have professional and good cooks that know, know how to cook really good from from the raw materials they have. And that together made it possible to raise the amount of organic in the total purchase to more than 50% without getting more budget. Without getting more budget. Because they could, instead of buying half-ready stuffs, they, they made it from, from scratch, from, from raw materials. And also taking the chance of buying things in season also cuts the cost. And of course, minimizing the losses cuts the costs. So this went together with a professionalization of, of the work that has been really successful. So, so that's another entry point uh, that is, uh, and it's all the school kids. I mean, it, this goes to everyone who has children in, in school, in a municipality. So it, uh, it is important to, it's, a, it's also an important ground for making 
a pilot project because you, it's not just some type of people with some specific preference, but you have to do something that works with, with the big majority of people, actually everyone. I mean, it's just nice to hear as well, because I, I, I made a note of it even when you said it before, that, that there's a possibility to have a more sustainable diet, at least, and, and, and save money. I mean, that those are typically, at least, the way that I hear them are like they're posed on the different ends of the of the spectra. And like I know when I go to the food store here, I mean Iceland is where I am right now. It's it's extremely expensive because we don't have that big of a local market of of produce and food. And but some vegetables are grown here and so forth. But nonetheless, like locally grown and organic, I mean, tend to be pretty expensive um, products. Yeah, one one thing you can observe is that. Uh... While some people say we can't afford organic food because it's expensive, then uh, here in Jarna, where I live, there are people with low-pay jobs, single mothers with low-pay jobs have only almost 100% organic in their food. So <laughs> it's definitely possible. Uh, uh, at that time, I checked my own. Uh, I made a little test and uh, saved every receipt for a month to see what what i actually buy food products this is a long time ago uh, and i noticed that more than half of everything was just for taste just spices and for taste i i mean from the uh, from the money i spent and i think that is the case for many many people they they will well when the milk price goes up uh, this is something to complain about, but then in the next moment, uh, you spend a lot of money on potato chips and other things that don't have a nutritional value. So there is certainly a room for for most people, but it's of course to change habits. Uh, that's a big work. That's a big job. <laughs> but if, if we would shift gears a little bit to the, to the diet uh, for, for the planet, because it sounds like um, there's still meat in your diet. Um, and, and I've, I've been hearing differently from, from other sides. I'm, I'm joking a little bit, of course, but, <laughs> but um, to be, um, I mean, how, how do you, what is that diet? If we've, we've covered the farming a little bit now. So if we shift over to yeah. the diet, how should we think about it? In practice, we don't exclude meat, but when, when we eat meat and meat products, I'm careful that it comes from organic or even re- ecological regenerative farms, but but organic is, is good enough. And uh, then I'm not ashamed of it because then we, we pay to, to where it comes from. And when it's grazing animals, that yes, I, I do avoid meat from, from animals that eat fodder that could be human food directly. And that means that di- that the, the animal part becomes less in, in the diet. We, we eat, me personally, we eat a lot less meat than, than the average, I would say. But we don't avoid it totally. Uh, and I so think is that it, like once a week or is it once a month or once a year? Oh, more <laughs> once a week and, and even a bit more. But uh, And uh, it's a good idea to use... Um, meat as a spice i mean when when you make what is it called carbonara you can mix in meat and have 
much of other things in it and a little bit of meat that gives the same taste. And in, in uh, many tacos and many su- such things, you can have different mixes that, so, that, so the meat consumption is not so high, really. So it's, I mean, what we want is to get the average meat consumption down to a level. We, we don't want a certain part of the population to be vegetarians or vegans and the others to, to continue eating too much. But some kind of balance. It's, it's an average we, we want to get down. And what else should we think about? Well, w- an easy one is that we can eat much more root crops. Carrots are very good. <laughs> Onions are very good uh, to use. And red beetroots, Swedes, cabbage, all these things, they're, they're very good to use. So we should, that's very helpful to learn to use them. And products in season. I stopped using fresh tomatoes in the wrong season completely. I mean, when, when the tomato season comes in July, August, then we eat tomatoes. And then we have a feast on tomatoes. And then we, when this season stops for, for fresh Swedish organic tomatoes, then we stop eating tomatoes. And we have other green things that are in season. So we have these, we work with these five criteria. Tasty and healthy, which is a question of skill, cooking skill, and uh, more organic as much as we can, and uh, local in season, less waste, minimize waste, and then to have a, the amount, uh, a fair amount of, of meat and think about how the meat is, which is very much also using. Uh, the full corn, the full grain, the complete grain, that helps a lot because when you eat the full grain, then you get more of the nutrients uh, and, and you will need less, less meat in that way. You get the nutrients there, some of the nutrients there. Yeah, I think you said anatomically aware last time I, you spoke, which I thought was... Yeah, anatomically aware, that's also important, yeah to eat the parts of the animals uh, that uh, are often actually waste. I mean, becoming, changing from lard to vegetable fat, that means to, uh, that the lard will be used in industry instead. It will not be eaten, but go somewhere else. And then while the, uh, maybe the, Vegetable fat comes from palm oil that is not so sustainable. So, so that, that shift is not a good one to do. Yeah. So there are many aspects to think about there. But it, it also sounds, I mean, it was liberating to me as well because you were both talking in terms of principles. And, and then there's also the spectra of, of um, do as much as you can uh, type of thing. And that's, of course, like a little bit of a dodge and, and like, I have two small kids and, and we're a little bit lazy with the food and it, 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 I've, I struggle a little bit with the, the <laughs> passion for food in that way personally. So I have a hard time. Um, I have not been able to sort of make the switch to, 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 uh, you know, to, to go completely vegetarian or, or to, you know, but we are trying to reduce meat and we're trying to, but it was just that framing of kind of do what you can mm. and, and stick with it. And also, um, you know, organic, seasonal, 
um, those those things seem more attainable to me uh, in mm. a sense. And then local is also another you know attainable aspect of of food. It seems like. On one hand, you must be kind to yourself, <laughs> uh, because to punish yourself doesn't help anyone. Uh, on the other hand, I think the thing with with uh, uh, with your own diet, it's very much that you should walk your talk. So when you start doing something and talking about it, well, when when you do the same thing that you are talking about, then then it's good. So that you can uh, talk about it with a good conscience, and and uh, but it's also very many things you can't do, and and you can't have a bad conscience for that because the food system is, as it is built up with all the infrastructure, is standing in the way. So you can't punish yourself for things that you can't change. That could be. It. Then I kind of want to switch over as well to talk about the regional component because I I heard you speak about the bioregions. Um, would you? What is that? Um, just to give the the basic. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, to really capitalize on the po- uh, on the potential win-win. When uh, producers are producing uh, products that are really regenerative and doing a good job, and you have processors that take care of that quality and distribute it to consumers that appreciate the quality and, and can do something with it, then you capitalize on something. And so you have a great win-win. And so the idea of the bioregion is to take a regional grip so that you're not too much dependent on uh, the national infrastructure, which may be complicating for you, and start with engaging actors locally uh, that really understands the possibilities in this and can make a strategy together. We have recently been able to have a little part, uh, not myself, but uh, the chairman of, of Beras, to start an organization named Global Alliance of Organic Districts. And this is something that is, I think it comes up in many places because this sort of lies there that uh, when you see the advantages on a small scale and on a middle scale, you want to scale it up to the region. That This comes from all over. And there were two rather big organizations, one in Southeast Asia based in a the city Gosan in, in South Korea and with many other members around Southeast Asia called Algoa and another organization in Europe called International Network of I-N-N-E-R International Network of Ecoregions and, and they came together with IFWAM that is the World Movement for Organic Agriculture and Regeneration International, and together they formed this Global Alliance of Organic Districts, which means that for the first time, it has been possible to get all these local initiatives that are very different to come together and uh, discuss what is the uh, what is what are the clues for success here? What is it that makes it possible? And they are really formulating methods and. Uh, 
providing tools so that now it can be more and more possible for any other region to hook onto this. So th I think that's a fantastic development. And uh, we are, we're starting a little development in, uh, in our region to get the first uh, biodistrict in uh, northern Europe started. But but is it does it have anything to do with like because I've I've understood it as like does it have anything to do with like a type of soil or like a specific climate or it, or bioregion is just an an area of influence if you will or is it is it arbitrary the the split of bioregions is just sort of big enough but not too big and and whoever is engaged or is it is there a specific material basis for calling something a bioregion like a specific valley or or like a specific soil type or something like that. That's been my curiosity. Definitely not a soil type. It can they can be very different, and uh, uh, I think this is something that we have to learn with experience also. But I have a I have a thinking about that, and that is based on what I started with when you asked for a global overview, the one thousand eight hundred square meter per person, and I'm looking for a region that has at least 1,800 square meters per inhabitant. Uh, so it would be very challenging for New York or London to form a bioregion because it would be very, very large. Uh, and I think it is better to split that up and that uh, the inner city will, will sort of deal with bioregions out there that, that are for export. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Because many many bioregions will have more than that, and uh, then like we are thinking in in our bioregion, we are thinking about one county, but plus a part of another county. So we are thinking a little bit outside the the box in relation to the administrative borders we have. And then you're thinking so self-sustaining that that this this bioregion should kind of be able to to sustain itself to. A fairly large degree. Is that the way to? Well, the thing the thinking is that it should be uh, a region that has. That's my specific thinking. Uh, that it should have a little bit more uh, of rural area, so it is at least possible to do that. But I, it's possible that there would be bioregions also with with larger cities in them. But we'll see that. That's that's not. That's not finished how it exactly will look. But that's interesting as well. I mean, when we think about cities in this, in this way and, and sort of the, the localized, in this localized economy. So, I mean, are, are cities even possible in, in that? Or like how, you know, if, are we still beyond good and bad? <laughs> or can we say something about cities? Like how should we, if you are in a city at the moment and if you're, you know, how do we, how do we think about that? How do we? Um, yeah, do we keep eating sushi? Or if if I was uh, a local politician in a in a city, I would like to uh, negotiate with bioregions that has more food products than than uh, and start helping them already now. If you think about the crisis, if they pro suddenly would st stop everything coming in in the borders, uh, then. There would be big problems in the cities, and the countryside will will function a lot better. So, in that case, it would be necessary to send people from the cities to the countryside, which also happened during World War II and so on. 
So I think we need to think about that dependency between the city and the countryside a lot more than we do now. And in those negotiations, give the countryside a bigger part of the negotiation table so that we really listen to the needs of the countryside. That, I think, is is the important thing here, that we have an, an even table here, an even power distribution, so to say. The city and the countryside, they depend on, on each other, and that should be mirrored in, in the negotiation and the talks between them. The point for the bioregion is really that they have a, a strategy that is common, that they have discussed, a strategy that is based on we want to expand the ecological regenerative part, and they have a common thinking about how to do that common goal i think that is the success factor because when a when a region has the common aim something they then they can talk about things and then they can discuss things and be much more focused that's always uh, a success factor thank you for because what i was thinking as well was that i mean the technological side so there's a lot of talk about vertical farming and soil less farming you know and, and all of those Technology innovations, or I don't know if they're, yeah, I don't know how much innovation, but but anyways, like that type of thinking, where does that sit in this um, picture that we're talking about now, or, or from your view, how do you con- how do you consider those yeah. types of practices? Well, when we talk about vertical farming as one example, or uh, many other such where you don't use any soil at all, I think you should take a look at uh, the resources that come from other parts of the land that are used. How much energy, how much building material, how much of this and that. And look, how big are these areas in in reality? Uh, And uh, I know that we had a count on that for indoor farming in practice. And it ends with that it's not very sustainable when you talk ecology, it could be, yeah, for luxury and so. And I think it's a good pedagogic tool because when city population get to see and be involved in actual producing vegetables and things you eat, then it's, then it's a good thing because then that's, that's a step into understanding more. But if you start thinking about this as a, big solution for it, for the big problem, then we are in trouble because it isn't. It's such a small por- small part of, of what the city population needs mm. that it's completely unrealistic to build anything really sustaining people on that. But it's, int- I mean, yeah, that's a nice point though, still that it might have a role in reconnecting us to the land, if you will, or like reconnecting us to, to our food. To, to start seeing again where it comes from or to making it more present. Yeah, that, that, I think that is very important, that we start understanding and asking where the food comes from. That is a very important point. We start ask that, and when we discover, well, I can't live with that, then we begin to think, well, I must, must change something here. Already that is very important, just, just to know and be aware of and start to discuss these things. I mean. It's it's I, I really enjoyed this conversation because it for me it makes me feel empowered. Um 
and it makes me feel kind of like there it does matter what I do and and it does matter the decisions that I take and there are also these kind of nice simple heuristics for for making some choices that are there and and I can kind of start walking a path and then as I get informed and interested and uh, my kids get older and I have more time on my hands hopefully uh, you know um there will be there'll be room for me to be more and more and more sustainable and um what I'm picking away as well is that this idea that uh, the important thing is that I'm start starting to walk and starting to get informed um and then the end point is it, it will come eventually um at some point yeah it it will happen and it it has an effect when you ask for where things come from the wholesaler maybe begins to think that well there are consumers that think this is this is important you can start to begin to look at those wholesalers who are really caring about this so yes there are many many entry points into into start to walk really and so hans if you i know you have the course coming up so i, I would love to like direct the listener who are in, who's interested who who should uh, apply for for the course and what is it about and where can they find more information yeah the the course is uh, online so it's uh, it starts in in may and it continues for one year so uh, it's for anyone who can set aside a few hours every week for that time uh, to uh, fulfill and it will end with a project uh, where you walk you could say and and make a project out from your own initiative what you want to do so it's for actually for anyone who really is engaged and want to do something for real uh, the main target group is people who are working somewhere in the food system as a cook or as a diet manager maybe or in a restaurant or having something to do with public tender or anything there even civil society I, i'd say so we welcome ev- everyone in in this course and uh, to apply for it we have links on the beras international webpage I'll put them in the show notes as well. So if you just look in the show notes of the episode, you'll be able to see them and go straight there. And, yeah. and from there, it goes directly to the page where you do the application to Novia University. Is there anything else where you want to point people towards if they want to get informed or start moving in this direction? What, you know, reading or or YouTube's or I don't know, movies or something else, some other resource. There are lots of resources, but we will link to them on the uh, Beras webpage. You have also a lot of interesting materials at uh, dietforagreenplanet.se. If you're English-speaking, uh, then click on the English flag. Both those webpages have an English flag, and, and the text will switch from Swedish to English language. Fantastic. Thank you so much Hans for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.